0: Welcome back to the She Says Podcast. My name is Zola Prendival, and on this week's episode, I am joined by the beautiful Goza Le She is the author of the novel Girl from Revolution Road, which is a series of essays depicting hers, her family's, and her community's experience of moving from Iran to New Zealand. In my opinion, it is a must-read, as she hits the nail on the head when it comes to New Zealand's Islamophobia. We talk about her experience growing up in New Zealand, her initial reaction to the mosque shooting in 2019, and her motivation behind creating and directing movies with women of colour taking the lead and shaping the story that is told. This was an eye-opening interview for me. We recorded this interview halfway through last year, but I hadn't gotten around to editing until the start of this year. During this time, editing, there was two stories that came out in the news which reaffirmed the importance of this interview and Gozolet's novel. The first being the attack on the young girl who where she was beaten, given a concussion and had her hijab removed. Sadly, this was not unforeseen as she and other Muslim girls at her school had reported verbal harassment several times to their teachers and yet nothing was done. And secondly, the coroner's investigation of the mosque shooting which tells a story of an ugly and extremist side of New Zealand. I hope that we can all learn something from this interview and I really hope that you enjoy the story that Gozale has to tell. I'd love to talk to you about why you and your family initially came to New Zealand. I was six
1: when we moved to New Zealand. Um, and basically, this was around the late 80s in Iran, and you had a war going on with Iraq, but it was also the regime change that came after the uh, 79 revolution. So you had a revolution in 1979 where the Shah, or the king at the time, was kind of ousted by pretty much everyone in society. <laughs> um, and so everyone was kind of keen to bring in a new leadership. Um, at the same time, you had these clerics who were, you know, they, they were kind of part of the fight as well, but they were saying, no, we're going to stay to the side, we're not going to take over. What do you know? They took over. It's a very basic mm. <laughs> overview of what happened. Um, but that kind of brought in a regime change and changed Iran into the Islamic Republic of Iran. So, in the first couple of years, a lot of things changed, including really strict laws that came about from a very twisted version, I would say, of Islam, particularly um, in Islam from uh, like around the seventh or sixth century. So, they're like, you know, punishments like hangings and lashings and Mm. ridiculous restrictions particularly on sexuality gender particularly on women particularly on minorities um yeah pretty much everyone (laughs) um and so on top of that you have this ongoing war and Tehran, which is the capital city where we were, we had um daily bombings. Um and so for my parents it was kind of already a horrific, chaotic time. Do you remember those bombings? I do, briefly. And I think like most people, and I assume you're the same, it's when you think of your childhood memories, you sometimes wonder, Oh, was that actually real? Yeah. Did I merge it with a dream? You know. So I think for me it's it's blended with not just my memories but my parents memories as well and that's kind of what I had to why I had to talk to them to kind of confirm some of the things and whether or not they happened but some things did stay with me and one thing that I talk about in my book one scene in particular was um, during air raids you would get On the TV, the picture of the Ayatollah, who was the Supreme Leader, would come on and they would talk, you know, they would have this like warning and a warning air siren would come on and you're meant to go and like hide in the basement or in a bomb shelter if you have one. Most people lived in apartments, so you'd go to the basement. And I just remember one time we were watching TV and my my little sister was asleep in her room and, and the air siren came on and I told my dad, I was like are we going? And he's like, oh, and by that point, he was so tired. <laughs> he was just was like, it? if it's going to hit us, it'll hit us. And so we just stayed. <laughs> it was quite funny. Um, I, I assume we still went. I don't think my dad's that much of a rebel. <laughs> but I think at the beginning, he was just so, like, tired of it. So that's kind of what I remember. I don't remember any horrific images or, um, thankfully, nothing too traumatic from that aspect of it. And I think the age that I was allowed me to kind of bypass that. Whereas, you yeah. know, when I took my aunties or even um, kids who are a bit older than me, they remember certain perfect yeah. scenes. Um, for me, it was kind of like a norm. You know, going to school, there were sandbags. Um, and only recently, again, for the book, I kind of read up on why you'd have sandbags in a war zone and I'm like, oh, right, okay, so it's to kind of counterblast the blast. Um, and then coming here, I was like, why is there no sandbags? Like I thought that was just part of the school
0: mm. that you would normally
1: have. And so that was kind of the first time you realized, oh, that's not the norm. Yeah. Even though it was for me, but wow. you begin to question your reality, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: But what was the final straw? Because in your book, you know, you describe your family going out, having a party, drinking alcohol, which was forbidden at the time. Mm-hmm. So what was the final decision? Like what created the... Your family to say this is enough we can't live here any longer it's not safe to bring up a family here
1: yeah so for them it was a very specific moment and it it sadly was like that for a lot of people Uh, for my parents it was they so you couldn't have mixed parties and by mixed parties I mean um, women and men and I think it's still in place now like Mm. these arbitrary rules that they have and you definitely couldn't have alcohol and that's still in place now but You know, (laughs) like anywhere in the world, people will find a way. Mm. At that time, people will make their own vodka or their own alcohol um, and you would have secret house parties. And my parents decided to go to one um, and it was a family party. So there was like myself, my baby sister, like a lot of kids and grandparents, you know, it wasn't like a rave or anything. And they went to a smaller town, like probably like from here to Hamilton And it was at a factory that someone owned, and um, they just thought, you know, it'll be away from the city, it'll be more um, private, probably less likely to get caught. Um, And they were there, and they were having their homemade vodka and stuff, and they did get caught. So someone, I think, like a neighbour would have ratted them out. Um, And at one point, all these soldiers came along, including the town muller, who's usually like the head judge as well. (laughs) Um, Everyone gets arrested. um, Did you get arrested as well? Yes, I got arrested. My baby sister was arrested. So all the women are put in one room, all the men are put in another room. And then they have some mercy, um, like my mum who was breastfeeding and obviously the kids and the older woman, they just had to stay in jail. But the younger woman and all the men got um, taken to the town centre and lashed publicly lashed which is Mm. again you know at the time all I remember like my mum said I was actually loving it like (laughs) loving the drama in in the in the the jail and then I have this like vivid flash of my dad's back and that's kind of it Mm. and then when I you know talk to my parents now collectively remembering it especially now I think because time has passed they're very willing and open about it even make jokes about it Mm. um Whereas I remember when we first moved here, it was still quite a hushed thing, you know, and understandably they didn't want to talk about it. They do not want to tell anyone. No one else wanted to know about it. And that's been quite interesting, writing about that in my book. And I've had a couple of particularly Iranian people who were like, why would you ever write that about your parents? Because to them it's such a intimate, private thing. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it's been 30-something years since that happened. And I think for my parents it's – it's something that traumatized them, but they were able to move on. Like they were able to, it's not something that will, you know, hound them or, or hang out around them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And sadly, every family has a story like that that comes from yeah. Iran, yeah. you know, and I think maybe that's part of why they were like, yeah, talk about it because you can't just repress it. You know, yeah, everyone's it's important gone through it. to talk about it. It's yeah. important to talk about. And I think that's something some people I know in my community do, deal with is this idea of keeping secrets um and i think there's a lot of stuff that goes um, that that there's that a lot of complexity that go into that from you know living under a fascist regime living mm. in a bigger town or or even just culturally maybe it's not appropriate to talk about yeah. private things so i think i understand that but at the same time i think it was really cool that my parents were willing to
0: um be so open about it did you Um, always want to write a book
1: i did yeah okay
0: yeah and what finally made you write this book
1: i think it was a combination of um having this idea and then thinking oh there's some other ideas that could be great as essays but also realizing that you could write a book of personal essays i just never really Mm. had read much um beyond like academic ones i just thought there's short stories and there's novels and then there were like books that are very specific about a certain topic. And then it was, you know, reading personal essay books. It was like, oh, actually, you don't have to have lived, you know, 70
0: years to write one. Mm. And so, what was that like for you as a six year old coming? to New Zealand, not knowing English Mm. and then having to, you know, be inserted within New Zealand culture. And particularly at that time, you said in your book, there wasn't a whole conversation about diversity. There wasn't a conversation about Mm. being inclusive. What was that like for you and your family? For me, it was, yeah, definitely not
1: knowing English was a big thing. And I think that's still the case. Mm. Um, But I'm hoping there are more people that are um, willing to help uh, willing to accept that not everyone comes in knowing the culture immediately or knowing the language immediately. Um, I think there's more maybe things in place to help with, with that
0: as well. Um, kind of like a middle ground. Yeah. So when you enter New Zealand, potentially you get a little bit of schooling on the culture and the language. Exactly, yeah. Although it's, I guess it's, it's easier for children because you, um,
1: you know, as opposed to your parents because you go into school and you start this whole new life. And with the, with your peers and you're quicker and picking up things like accents and you're picking True. up certain other things. And so you pick up that culture a lot quicker than say your parents. And I think then that gives way to a lot of cultural challenges between you and your parents. But yeah, the language is the main issue. And, and so I read a lot of books. Um, because I didn't want to be embarrassed, not just by the other students, but even by teachers who got angry very quickly. They didn't understand what they were saying. Were yeah, they quite cruel to you? Yeah, one in particular was very cool, you know, not understanding what the homework is. And then, uh, but that instead of them understanding that you just don't understand, and I assume this happens to kids who might have learning difficulties in, in other ways. Um, they were just really mean. <laughs> um, and then, so, but that spurred me to, you know, read a lot, and, and I was privileged that I could i learned how to read very quickly and read english and um and that kind of helped me progress like i skipped a class a year oh, yeah. i should say I skipped a year mm-hmm. which was quite funny and then english became my favorite subject purely wow. <laughs> because it's writing and reading yeah. you know um yeah and then i found friends very quickly um oh, nice. i think it was the right age whereas i think if you're a bit older and you come here like as a teenager i'm sure that's a lot harder mm. I mean, teenagers are mean anyway. But and you already, you already totally. had your clicks, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. High school was a lot easier. Um, even and when things happen, like again, there's some scenes in the book when I talk about a well, I say a well-meaning in quotation marks teacher. <laughs> she was actually not. I think she was very daft. Um, you know, she came up to me and she's like, she just saw me. She's like, "Have you been in New Zealand long?" Mm. And I answered her with, "Yes, most of my life." And you know, first year. At, form three whatever that is now year nine nine. yeah first year at year nine um you know got taken to esl class um they didn't even ask me they just assumed because they looked at my name on the roll and it happened to a few of my other friends who have who are um, immigrants Mm. (laughs) so that was just ridiculous um but then those kind of things you you tend to just laugh it off or yeah, you know, it's it's that microaggressive kind of casual racism. And there's something definitely problematic about it. But because you're not too offended or hurt by it, you kind of just deal with it.
0: And mm. that's, I think,
1: what I had to do throughout a lot of high school in particular or, you know, little slight comments or things that people would say. And, again, they think they're well-meaning. But underneath it, there's a sinister kind of yeah. racism that comes with it and they don't realise that. And you might not even realise it. Until later when you're like, Why is this bugging me? you know? Definitely. And even like twenty years later, then you might be like, Oh,
0: that time at that party.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably one of the most important messages within the first part of your book is that it uncovers, I guess, the underbelly of racism within New Zealand that I think a lot of people, particularly Pucky, who don't have to go through that every day and they don't have to have those snide comments. It's very easy to ignore and kind of tell yourself alive. New Zealand is incredibly diverse. It's, we accept all cultures. We're very um, accommodating, which as I'm growing up and as I'm reading more and more stories from different perspectives and talking to more and more people from different backgrounds, it's become so evident to me that New Zealand has a real undercover racism. You and your family would probably have met quite a lot of that racism, particularly with, you know, politicians like um, Winston Peters. How (laughs) daft, you know, what's your reaction to people who come out with those kind of anti-foreign statements like that? Um, It was very much a
1: accepted racism, you know, people making jokes about it, you know, using jokes as a way to kind of get past it, for example. Um, particularly after 9-11, I think a lot of things kind of changed. You know, snide remarks about bombing the Middle East. It's like a snide that's actually quite offensive. Mm. Um Interesting, though, that you receive it with humour, though. Is yeah. That, do
0: you think that's a defensive thing?
1: I think it's a defense thing, but also it's just, to me, it's just so extreme. I can't mm. put, put it in real Like, yeah. it's just such a different... It's, it's such a like whoa! You went like all the way there, like from zero to a hundred, you know. And I laugh about it because it is such a—it's weird. But I'm like, It's like a stare It's almost like a cliché. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and yeah, people like I, there has been instances in my life where I, where it's stuck with me, and I wonder if the person who said that they probably don't even remember that they said that, you know. Mm. But for me, it's kind of stuck. Again, not in a traumatic way. I've been lucky that I've never had anything too horrific or traumatic happen. It's often just be verbal. Things. And
0: did that and pa- after 9-11. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, there was a massive Islamophobia that ran Islamophobia, world, world anything line. about the
1: Middle East. Yeah. yeah. Um, prior to that, it's just, oh, you're not from here. Prior to that, it was just, oh, you're brown. Oh, you're not from here. Oh, your mm. name's funny. Oh, you're not Christian. Or, you know, oh, your um, parents have accents. You know, again, very offensive things, but it was – not seen as something offensive. And then post 9-11, it just brought in this whole other thing. Um, and even, for, and I think people would assume, I'm trying to think of a way to say it, it's it's. say I'm in the room and they're having this conversation about bombing Afghanistan, <laughs> like a, this actually happened to me at a party. This guy was going on about how great it is that they're bombing Afghanistan straight after, mm. you know. Yeah. And he didn't acknowledge the fact that someone like me would be very offended by it because to him I was just one of the people, one of his mates, mm. one of the, the other five pakeha. Was- yeah, one mm-hmm. of the other, like, five Pakiha in the room. And I find that really fascinating because they're kind of proving a point that when you start seeing people as people, you're not going to see them as just, you know, oh, the foreigner or that person or that, num- you know, as a number. And um but at the same time you can't deny mm. them that either. You know, you should be highly aware that A, you shouldn't say that anyway to anyone, but be aware <laughs> of your audience. But also be aware and, and, and mm. also if I get offended, know why I get offended. And that happened at another incident at work. And um the guy was kind of it was after the Australian Lint Coffee yep. Shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at work we were watching it all because it was all live, you know, news and stuff. And this guy went off about, again, bombing the Middle East in front of me and my dad who also worked at the same place. And then afterwards he had the audacity to come up to me because I I walked off in a huff, you know, I'm terrible at conflict. That was my (laughs) version of – I just didn't
0: want to engage with him. Did that stir something within you though? Did you feel like – Almost fuck you, or was it yeah, more... Yeah, I mean, he was a dick anyway. Yeah, I think I was just more ast- astounded at
1: someone, A, saying something as horrific as that. Yeah. Um, you know, he was an older dude. He should know better. He's a gen- in general mm. um But he also is... <sighs> you know bit of a duck bit of a duck very yeah. right wing uh,
0: <laughs> so that. that part
1: wasn't you know it was that kind of oh that's why i don't want to engage but then he had the audacity later to come up to me and say oh i'm sorry if i no he didn't say i'm sorry he just said oh i didn't mean to offend so i guess those things kind of rile me up um and they've stuck with me and I, like i said they nothing too horrific in that i'm sure you know and i know really awful things do happen to people purely because of where they're from and, yeah. you know, you hear about instances all the time, especially now, which is really sad because you
0: think we'd be getting better, but we're no. in some ways getting worse. Um, do you think it's – do you wear a hijab? No. no. Do you think it's because you don't wear a hijab that you don't necessarily get that reaction from yeah, people? Yeah, I think there's definitely a d- uh, another level to people who, who,
1: you know, particularly women, because they are more visible and how they express their faith, they get the brunt of it, for sure. Um, you know, just the, just yesterday I think I saw a video. I mean, to be fair, this was in the States. Um, but it was because a woman was wearing a hijab, she's from Egypt, and this other woman just went off at her. Um, the irony was the other woman was also from outside of the US. <laughs> um, mm. but I think there is this vitriolic kind of hatred towards Islam and anything to do with Islam, including any countries, no matter even if you're not religious, you know. Um, but for me, the two kind of became intertwined at some point. So I'm not religious, mm. but I can't separate myself from the Muslim culture in some ways. Because, because they're there's so a lot intertwined. Of, yeah. yeah, there's a lot that's mixed, um, And you have a stronger affinity with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Again, coming from Iran, there's a lot of people who would be very anti uh, anything to do with Islam purely because it was so forced on them at a Mm. certain age. You know, there are some Iranian women in particular who are very anti the hijab, and I can see that because they come from a background where it was enforced, you know, they were punished if they didn't wear it properly, Mm. whereas I escaped that because I was too young to kind of have to endure it, you know. And anything that's forced on you, you're going to hate, you know. It's the same
0: as here. If you're forced not to wear, like what they're doing in France, it's horrific. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what's your, I guess, reaction to a Western perspective of a hijab being a symbol of patriarchal control?
1: Mm-hmm. Is that
0: does that does your opinion differ from that, or do you see it more kind of holistically?
1: Absolutely, because I used to be that person. Again, coming from a place where it was forced on you and seeing how certain family members hated it, but then knowing why they hated it. You know, anything that you're made to do when you don't want to do and, and, you know, the fact that they were punished for it, that people went to jail for it, that people are still going to jail for it, they're protesting because they don't want to wear it. You have to take all that on board. But at the same time, when you're here and you meet people who, who want to wear it, it's part of who they are, it's part of their faith, you can't deny them that either. So it's absolutely, yes, yeah. it's completely linked in with anything to do with sexism and and um, women's bodies, right? And mm. to me, that's that's core thing is the policing of women's bodies, and it it will reach into this area of of you know what people wear for their faith, and I think it's. It makes me angry.
0: <laughs> um
1: <Good. laughs> Yeah. I think it, as a woman from any background, I think we should be angry because it's just as bad as, you know, going, Oh, don't wear a mini skirt out or banning, you yeah. know, certain certain elements of clothing. Um and this is worse because it's it's not just clothing, it's someone's um relationship to their faith. Um, I mean France is a great example of of Islamophobia. It's definitely Islamophobia. You cannot ban people wearing a hijab yeah. like but you can wear anything else. You can wear a cross. You can wear, you
0: know, a, a yarmulke. You can wear, you know, yeah. But no, not the hijab. <laughs> I guess it's interesting to me because I feel like France and then a lot of parts of the Middle East where it's forced upon you. You're supposed to, and you have to. It's a law that you have to wear the hijab. Mm-hmm. And then in France, you're not allowed to. Both of those laws don't really allow for any self-expression. Or as you were saying, some women wear it. Because it's their faith. It's a symbolism of their faith. Yeah. Even yes. if
1: it's not, you yes. don't want to wear it. You should be able to wear it. And it's all the patriarchy. So, yeah, I I agree. Being forced to wear a hijab is is part of the patriarchy, but so is everything else. Like, where in the world isn't there the patriarchy enforcing something on your body? Mm. You know, even here, like, for example, a lot of women didn't know about the abortion laws that were in place. That's still, were, you know, I think only this year, right, or last year it got mm. changed. So I think it's a very basic way to look at things. And I think people need to expand their views on it. But unfortunately we do live in a place where Western media in particular kind of uses the woman in a hijab as, as this other threat, right? The threat of Islam, the logo yeah. of it is the woman in a chad or a hijab or, a, uh, or what have you. And, um, and that's something that's, obviously needs to change but also that's why I think a lot of people think that way um because that is kind of what they've been brainwashed with
0: Mm. as you're saying it's it's become a symbol for like from the lens of western culture being a potential symbol of control Mm -hmm. on women's bodies but also from the lens of the west a symbol of fear because of all of the attacks and the bombings, nine eleven, and the Lunt Cafe, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just something that it is a choice. It's always down to
1: choice. And you know, I'm definitely against someone whose whose parents are making them wear it if they don't want to. Obviously, I'm against that. I'm not someone who who does wear it. You know, I'm not someone who I might not know one of my family wears. it. You know, we're not again, you know, mm. we're not practicing. We're not. So it's interesting that people ask me about it and I sometimes feel like a fraud or that I'm kind of speaking out of turn because I feel like you need to talk to someone who actually does. Mm-hmm. This is my obviously my opinion, my viewpoint, but I think if we really want to get um, a better understanding of it, we need to give platforms to these other people who really know.
0: who live it every day. So on a more serious note, um, <laughs> which not to say that <laughs> that wasn't serious, yeah. but even though you're not Muslim – in 2019, March 15th, where were you and what was your initial reaction to everything? I was at uni actually working on the
1: pieces. I was in my little office, which has no windows, I don't know exactly how I heard of it, but then I remember just suddenly going online trying to find as much information and going on the RNZ website or going on um, NZ Herald or, you know, every kind of local news outlet. And then one of my colleagues, um, Jenny, was there and we both were just sitting there and every time someone would put up a video, we'd watch it, like a news organisation, we'd watch it trying to get more information. It was, I think it was very much shock. And I know for a lot of people it wasn't shock in terms of, expecting something that's horrific to happen but i think i was one of those people that was naive enough to believe something this extreme wouldn't happen Um, in new zealand in new zealand Mm -hmm. yeah but then once you thought about it you're like no it it would you know why wouldn't it um but at at that very moment i think it was quite natural to feel this horrific shock and just kind of numb um and then afterwards i was meeting a friend at um a bar on K-Road. Um, my friend Gory's who's a Green MP, just name dropping it. No, there's Green. a reason um, and because we were meeting up as soon as we saw each other we both just started crying. Like it was just weird feeling of just dread and sadness um, and we're not cries but there was something very emotionally draining about what happened and the, the, I think the reality of it and the horrificness of it just kind of suddenly came to that moment when we saw each other. Um, Yeah, and then I came home, you know, thankfully I live with flatmates so we could all, like, sit together and just kind of it was nice to be with people who you support and and feel safe with. I think that was important. Um, Yeah, I think even just thinking about now, I'm like, I don't recall certain things, but, again, it's certain images or certain feelings from that day and just – a lot around being aghast, I guess is the word. Yeah, yeah. The shock factor of it all. Yeah, shocking, but in a horrific way. Um, yeah. For me, the most horrific, you know, one of the most horrific things was the fact that it was filmed. That I cannot understand or get over. To me, that's just something, it's another level of, of just hate, you know, mm. just, and that people were watching and people were sharing, like, Oh, I can't yeah. even,
0: I don't of, even know words. <laughs> yeah. It takes away from the human factor and that's I've it. heard someone describe it, it looked like a video game. Oh. Yeah. And that's it. I think the inhumanity of it, it just is taken to another level with that. What was your reaction to New Zealanders, particularly Pakeha's reaction to the mosque shooting? What I think was- for the most
1: part a lot of people, you know, felt that shock and, and they were willing to wake up and and hold these conversations that so many other people were like, Well, we've been trying to have these conversations for years, you know.
0: Mm.
1: And then there were those who I think kind of jumped on the bandwagon a little bit. And I'm thinking of Sean Plunkett. Um, at one point I remember on his Twitter, he like he changed his stupid wallpaper or whatever the thing is on your Twitter. To a Muslim saying, you know, "Assalamualaikum" or something, and like this pattern, this from from Muslim pattern, Islamic, uh, sorry, like art. And I'm like, you're one of the most vilest, like, awful people out there. And suddenly, you're, you know, oh, like they were us. Oh, like all these things. I'm like, you've been spit-, you know, spitting this vitriolic nonsense for ages on your platforms. It, the hypocrisy, I guess, is what got me. And mm. then, sure enough, you know, a year later you would get comments of people saying, oh, aren't we over it yet? You know, the commemorations that came out um, last year when we did our uh, – we did a video series for RNZ where we asked – you know, we talked with various different Muslim people about things that they love or doing or hobbies or what what have you just as a way to kind of show people that, you know, your faith isn't all you are. You know, it's part of you, who you are. It's part of your identity but just to kind of humanise mm. – the other in a way (laughs) so the title of this docuseries this is us and so where did that stem from so that kind of came from um when the prime minister was talking about you know they are us even when she said that at the time i kind of felt that was wrong choice of word Mm -hmm. it's still othering this group of people it's still saying this is a different group to who we are i'm like aren't we all we you know Mm -hmm. um and so we purposely called it this is us as in uh, the us includes the the muslim community in particular um and it was you know when you watch it it's not something that goes really deep it's not something you know very um investigative or anything like that it was just a very simple um short series about you know talking about loving someone loving cooking or someone loving the beach um and it was interesting most people liked it but when it did come out because it was made for the commemoration, the one-year commemoration by RNZ and NZ On Air. And when RNZ put out one of the stills, it was a um, still of one of the women who wears, I'm not sure actually what the correct term is, but it's kind of like a full um, white chodor or her face is showing, but it's like covering most of her mm-hmm. body and hair. And it had the words, this is us over it. And they got not inundated, but whole lot of negative comments going on about how this isn't us even after that day this isn't us they'll never be us like really horrific um is this on social media on social media wow. yeah i mean <laughs> it is facebook in some ways <laughs> you're like oh and thankfully RNZ were very quick at removing all those negative comments
0: um interesting though that it has only been a year that the whole yeah. country was oh, we need to include them we need to support them we need to empathize with them exactly and yet a year later, there's comments like that.
1: Yeah. Oh, should move on. Get over it. But again, I think it reverts back to, you know, that image of a woman still too threatening for them to even comprehend some sort of empathy. Or I, I got angry because it's, you know, that people we interview real people that not actors. So they've
0: shown a generosity exactly. to let people in their lives and say, hey. This exactly. is me, regardless of my religion or what I look like or what I wear. This is who I am. And they're inviting people in. They know,
1: and these, you know, they're not. They know that they might get some mm. negativity. So they were, but they were still willing to to um, be a part of it, which was really um,
0: beautiful. That's not the first movie-like docu series you've made. You've had a bit of a history in film. Can you tell me more about that and why you are drawn to making films? yeah I um I always wanted to do film when I was younger I wanted to be an actor like a lot of people I think
1: <laughs> um nice. and I kind of pursue that yeah <laughs> I mean it's fun why not when you end up doing it you're like oh this is fun
0: you can't sing you can act
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I can't sing so that's why I think I just want to be in that world and to begin with it was yeah I want to be an actor and then um Because I kind of was really into writing, I started writing a bit more. And then when I did film school, I kind of focused more on screenwriting. And then only in the last few years have I kind of brought um, myself (laughs) to take on directing because I find it very challenging. Um, Part of the reason I wanted to do it was because of the dismal numbers of women directors. So I was like, you know, instead of bitching about it, maybe you could help change it. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was partly why I wanted to do writing because I got sick of the roles that were made written for women um, when I was in my 20s. And only recently have we finally started to get more women of colour in particular in these roles. And it's great, but
0: it was a long ass fight. And it's still, mm. you know, we're still fighting. And to you, does that power come from the roles of screenwriter and director I making think those
1: yeah uh, yeah. I think a combination of of them but also other people involved and I've learned that from working with um producers like my name drop but I think I should because you can never get these women on your podcast <laughs> no um Carrie Wakia who yeah and Ainsley Gardner um Shuchu Kathari, all of these women who you know they paved the way they really paved the way because mm. they're not that much old you know they're you know like late 40s to mid 50s, I would say. But you can imagine the kind of shit they would have had to deal with and um, to get to where they are. And now they're at the top of their game. And what I love about them is now they're reaching out to emerging filmmakers. It really helps change how you work and, and the confidence in yourself. Um, and not to say I would never work with another Pakeha producer, <laughs> but it really does help when you have someone who really gets it, especially if you're writing yeah. about something. Um, Specific to do with, you know, being a woman of color, which my feature film that I'm doing at the moment with Ainsley does. It's about these two Iranian, um, women, well, once Iranian Maori and one's Iranian. And they, it's a friendship story. And there were certain elements that I feel like Ainsley just got because, you know, she's a woman of color. She can get some, of the, like some of the little things they deal with. Um, and I think she just got it also just as a woman and to have that person there to support you for Ainsley to have been like, no. Nope, That makes sense. Ah, the backbone of it all. Yeah, exactly. And that's really important, I think. I strive to kind of work with them as much as I can, but also to learn from them and to try and give back
0: myself. Um, Mm. That's kind of my aim. But that's the beautiful thing about female leadership. Yeah. yeah, Is that it's not solely about you and getting to the top. It's about a community. So true. Inclusivity of everything, like,
1: you know, things like, oh, let's make the set – better for people with children or or you know or or even just oh hey how about we co-direct this how about
0: we don't just it's not just me me with greater levels and greater numbers of females within leadership positions in the film industry do you think that will then translate into the amount of representation we see on screen
1: oh definitely um particularly women of color i think there's been a real push for women in general in the film industry but it's tended to um emphasize or or bring out a lot of out woman which is fine but that's not mm. the end goal you know that's Absolutely, not yeah so i think but i think it will i think i mean me personally i always write about woman and i always write about woman of color like all my features or um features <laughs> like i've written that many all my works film works will focus on that and i if i direct it i will um that's one of the things that I will make sure is, is a thing that they have to be a woman of color as mm. the lead, um, and as many people of color on that in the cast as much as the crew as well, actually. And I think it, it just has to change because, and also the stories that you tell, I think, will change as well. You know, you know, when you watch certain movies now from like the early two thousands, and you're just like, oh, that's so outdated. It's so outdated, yeah. and, and and it's great because it means that the audiences are ready for it too. Yeah, you know. I think it's super important because sometimes people just don't think about certain things um, because they're in their own world, you know. For me, I'm like, that is my world. I want, you know, my world is being a woman of colour, so I'm going to have woman of colour and, mm. and, you know, and and whatever kind of, and, and the story will of, often kind of be related to that. So the the Iranian, the two Iranian friends, you know, there is an element of racism that they endure from everyday New Zealanders but also then it goes on about their friendship which has nothing to do with that side of the identity. Um yeah. but but it's important to bring that element in because that is who that is something you you do
0: have to deal with, you know. You can't just deny the fact that you're Iranian and living in New Zealand. <laughs> mm. But it's kind of, would you say it's creating another layer because it's not solely your skin color, it's not solely your ethnicity or Definitely. your gender. Yeah, it's We're all people, we're all human at the end of the day. And as a storyteller, it definitely adds another
1: Mm. level of interest, I think, Um, especially because it is stuff that we haven't seen that often, so that brings in this element of, you know, excitement, dare I say originality. Um, But I think, you know, most people are curious and they would love, you know, to see different stories and I think that's what I've loved about my book is – Audience, uh, not audiences, but readers who I didn't think would be interested have been interested. Like mm. my Parkia friends, parents. I've had a yeah. few, you know, be like, oh, my mum loved it all. You know, one of my friends, um, his mum is a farmer down in somewhere. <laughs> 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 um, but he was like, oh, she loved it, and I did not. She, he didn't even think she would love it, but
0: mm. you know. So well, that's what I thought when I was reading it. I just <laughs> thought it was an incredible gift because how else am I supposed to learn? How else am I supposed to be a good Pākehā New Zealander? You've given New Zealand and, you know, I hope the rest of the world a gift of insight. And I'm I'm very honoured to be sitting here with you today. That was Gozalé Golbash. If you'd like to learn more about what she had to say in the interview, I highly recommend going out and buying her book, Girl from Revolution Road. It's available at Unity Books, Women's Bookstore, and Book Depository. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on this episode, please head over to the she Says underscore podcast. Thank you again for listening. See you next week.